What's up, everyone? Yes, it is I, your host, Natalie Morrison, and you might be thinking, wasn't this called Swim Masters? Well, yes, it was, and you're definitely in the right place. We decided that we wanted to give the podcast a bit of a makeover, and we're so proud to introduce to you Revoicing the Future, a Women of NAM podcast. Don't worry, it's still the same content, still the same hosts. We just wanted to take this to the next level. And we're excited that you're joining us on this fantastic journey. The episode that you're currently listening to was recorded before the name change. And I just wanted to let you know that you are in the right spot. So keep on listening. Be sure to subscribe and stay tuned for all new episodes of Revoicing the Future, a Women of NAM podcast coming soon. Welcome to Swim Masters, a podcast dedicated to help connect, grow, and support women in the music products industry. I am your host, Natalie Morrison. The Smart Women in Music Fund was established in 2018 by Robin Valenta, Dee Dee Hyde, and Crystal Morris to expand diversity, inclusion, and support for women in the music product space. Twice a month, I will sit down and host virtual conversations with various women across our industry to help foster mentorship and growth. Now, without further ado, Let's dive in. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to Swim Masters. I'm your host, Natalie Morrison. Thank you for tuning in as always. I hope everyone is doing well. Happy June. It's June 1st. We've hit summer. Live music is starting to come back. Theater is starting to come back. Life is starting to ramp up again. And it's been a long time coming and I'm pumped, pumped about it. Today's episode I'm stoked about. I got the opportunity to sit down and speak with Hillary Brown, who is the director of marketing for Kaiser Musical Products. And we talked about everything. And I don't want to give too much away, but we really wanted to focus on personal branding and self-awareness and the art of communication, and so much more. And I really think that this episode is going to bring a lot of perspective to people. And I hope that you can take what we've talked about and apply it to your own lives. So with that said, let's get into it and I'll see you next time. Hi, Hillary. Welcome to Swim Masters. Thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thank you for having me. I am absolutely elated to be here. It's an honor. So thank you. You're welcome. So before we dive into our topics for today, I'd love for you to give us a brief overview and background of your career and where you are today. Absolutely. So in terms of in terms of my career trajectory, you know, I've heard a lot of the fantastic women on this podcast talking about how their trajectory was not quite that linear as it pertains to the music industry. Many times, a lot of people started in other industries and just kind of found, you know, an, an optimal career change at the time. I can say with confidence, the music industry was my plan A. I had no plan B. Music is my passion. And I think at the onset, even you know, in, in my academic career, this was something that I was 
determined to do. Um, I started my career initially, I have a background in journalism. And so when I got out of college, I thought, oh, you know, fantastic, I'll, I'll just pursue journalism. Uh, nobody gave me the memo at the onset of the recession that a job doesn't just fall into your lap. It requires hard work <laughs> and tenacity and hustle. And so that dream journalism job didn't happen immediately. And so when I got out of college, I, I sort of was wondering, what, what, what should I do? You know, I'm just needing money <laughs> at the time. And I wound up working at Guitar Center just behind the counter at the accessories counter, even, you know, right out of, you know, with my college degree, just like fresh face looking for my, my first entry level job. And I just kind of had to make ends meet and yeah. survive. And lo and behold, having had that experience really opened my eyes to my passion for music products and learning everything I can about every type of brand there is in the industry. I just dove deep into expanding my product knowledge. And from that, also gained exposure to the variety of careers that there really were in this industry, including journalism. So when I was in that job, I was introduced to Music Inc. Magazine, which I I spent my professional career initially in Chicago, and it was based in Chicago. I, I found out about it, and they were offering an internship at the time. And this was two years out of college. I was working a retail job, and just for the pure reason that I wanted to succeed in this industry and just become an integral part of the culture, I took an unpaid internship at age 24 and continued to work my retail job, just wanting to hone my journalism chops. And so that's really where I started. That was my, my true foot in the door in terms of starting to engage in trade shows and things like that. Um, the mentorship that I had at that company was unparalleled and just the expertise was so valuable to me in that regard. As I started getting more ingratiated into the industry, I started developing relationships with manufacturers and other retailers. And I realized how important at that time it was to really develop a full breadth of expertise in every aspect of the industry. So mm -hmm. not only retail, but also the manufacturing side and understanding how all of these different pieces really come into play. And from that, I was introduced to somebody at Fender at the time, which was in Scottsdale, and they had offered me basically an entry-level copywriting career. And so this seemed like the opportune time to segue my writing skills into the marketing side. And so I spent quite a few years at Fender on the editorial side and realized that I really loved the idea of strategic thinking as it pertains to product launches and basically stepped up and took quite a few risks in terms of taking on larger projects in order to segue into marketing management. And so that's really where my career lies today is on the topic of marketing strategy. So Fender was really the place that I got to shine in terms of demonstrating those managerial skills. It was my first managerial job after starting in copywriting and working my way into a marketing manager position. And over the years, 
I took on various marketing direction roles, uh, now resulting in my current role at Kaiser Musical Products, uh, where I oversee all of the channel strategy across various marketing channels, and uh, just recently started my own agency as a bit of a side hustle. So yes. uh, that's, that's my long-winded tale in terms of my very, very versatile but fruitful journey in this industry specifically. I love that though, because like you mentioned, we've talked to a lot of incredible women who haven't had these very traditional linear paths. And I also like to say that I, music was always my plan A. There was no plan B. And when people ask me like, what would you, like, if you were into music, what would you be doing? And I would be like, music, I can't like tell you something else that I would be doing because that's what I wanted to do. So it's really, it's awesome to hear that you knew that you wanted to specifically be in music, but you've kind of, you created your own path through different avenues and looking at the industry in different ways to get to where you are today. It's awesome. Absolutely. And I think that is so critical to having garnered a, for lack of a better word, reputation in this industry is demonstrating to people that you really want to understand all of its elements. And I think just that, again, that desire to learn, expand your skill set, network with people, understand what other people are doing. Um, I think that really gave me a major leg up in terms of my communication within the industry, but also just, again, leveraging myself as an expert in the field. Um, and without that, I think I would have been at a significant disadvantage. So that passion, I think, for both of us uh, has really paid off. <laughs> yeah. When I was in school, I interned with NAM at the show. So it gave me that overarching like view into the industry. And I could see the manufacturing side, I could see the retail side. And I was able to take that into my role at a manufacturer because I'm like, okay, now I, I have this overarching view of the industry. But now I'm like, I get to focus on like one part of the side of the industry that of the music products industry. So and that's a huge thing, too, because it allows you to determine what your strengths mm -hmm. are, where you can really excel. And I think having that focus really lets you flourish as a professional and build your personal brand, for lack of a better word. So that focus after exploring all of it, I think is really the end product of, I guess, a history career of just determining where, yeah. where do I fit in? What is the, what's the appropriate thing for me? Well, that's a really good transition because we wanted to talk about creating your brand and what differentiate yourself from others. So let's start there and we'll kind of dive into like more specific. So what tips do you have about creating your own brand and what have you learned that's differentiated yourself from others? Sure. The most important thing, I'm very type A. So <laughs> I like to think that I can, <laughs> I like to think that I can try to be perfect at everything. And the truth of the matter is you can't do everything perfectly. And so in order to have a personal brand of value, and as I mentioned before, the key is really to elevate, elevate your strengths and mitigate your weaknesses. Everybody has weaknesses and we have to accept, accept our flaws and embrace our flaws, but also take what we're good at and really put that at the forefront of your brand. Give yourself a focus, give yourself an expertise. And I think that really sets you up for success, um, you know, in terms of advertising yourself and 
That being said, even if you have a focus in some in some regard, there's no exception to the amount that you can learn regardless. So I think one thing to emphasize as you're elevating what you're good at is that there's always room to learn and just constantly taking in as much as you can in terms of new skills, new technologies, new platforms so that you can evolve your strengths to suit whatever's going on in the industry, in the modern world. That's always been a huge, I've been a huge proponent of that, just like consistent learning and education and knowing that there's always room to grow, even if you're excelling at something. So that's one thing. And then I think it's just a question of, or it's just, it, it's really just the element of reputation management and owning it, for lack of a better word, you know, being consistent in your delivery. If you promise something to someone, whether it's a relationship, a deliverable, if it's you know, some sort of, you know, connective commitment, then you need to deliver on that promise every time with the same amount of quality and the same amount of passion to get people to really buy into your personal brand. In addition to that, I would say that that type of commitment and that type of promise should follow you everywhere you go. So this is not something that just should be ingratiated into your work. It should be ingratiated into your life. And not only the amount of focus you have in terms of your professional expertise, but what are your personal brand values? You know, What do you stand for? What do you believe in? And what is the kind of impact that you're going to make as yourself, as a human being? I think for me, I initially, in the earlier stages of my career, I was very dead set on just being good at, at the technical minutia of things. But then I realized as I became more, you know, as I transitioned into a leadership role, how much I was committed to giving back and to creativity and to thinking outside of the box and more of these like soft skills versus just like learning hard data or marketing strategy and taking those pieces of the puzzle and bringing them in really contributes to the authenticity of your personal brand. And it, I can say from experience that being more of a human and being more authentic and standing up for what you believe in, and of course, m making an impact from those decisions will be truly advantageous to, to anybody that's looking to better their image and, and their personal self. That's wow. There's so much to unpack there. I want to go back to what you were talking about, about being a perfectionist and because I am. And I started reading Brene Brown's Dare to Lead. And there's this entire section of the book that talks about how perfectionism is a hindrance to you. <laughs> and I was like, it can, it definitely can be, but I was, I mean, it can be. And I'll like drop the link if anyone's interested, but it was just, she defined it like, this is what perfectionism isn't. And this is what perfectionism is. And it was just very interesting and kind of a rude awakening for me, because <laughs> I try really hard to do everything like perfect, but I know I can't. It's a process. I well, know. Guess what? Nobody's perfect. And when you realize that, I feel like that allows you to be more comfortable as oh, your yeah. professional self. I completely, I completely relate. And I am, I, I completely understand. I am my own worst critic. Um, you know, my, I think, especially as a young professional, my performance was riddled with self-doubt and I questioned everything. And then I just realized where I shine the most, but also where I brought the most enthusiasm and the most passion and harness that as being a cornerstone of who I want yeah. to be as a leader. And that really made me more comfortable in my own skin. 
And it really allowed me to not brush off mistakes, but accept my mistakes and that people make them. And to that end, perfectionism isn't, it's not unilateral. There's so much to learn. So I also love what you said about building what your reputation is and fostering those relationships within the industry. Cause I do think that, I don't know if this is the same for other industries, but I know some are similar to the music products industry, but, and just the music industry as a whole, but it's all about your relationships and who, you know, and maintaining what those relationships are like, because it's not like, cause we see each other multiple times a year. Well, we'd like to in a normal world. Um, (laughs) It's so hard. I would say networking is hard. Not everybody is good at it. It is a really challenging concept to be able to come out of your shell and yourself um, and find like, and basically find similarities with people, especially in such a fast paced industry where networking is so critical. It can be really off putting to people, but if there's anything that I could advise, it's just finding a core small group, if you're not good at it, of people who will champion you as a professional and advocate for you. And that type of external advocacy and almost PR speaks for itself. And people will latch on to that reputation and will respect you just because you have these, you know, Mm -hmm. these champions in your corner, these, uh, you know, influential people in your corner who want to see you succeed. And I think just developing you know, again, a key a key network of people. It doesn't have to be a million people. Some people are really good at that, and some people just need that element of support. And I think that's a great place to start. Is just find your mentors, find your corner. You know, find find your small group of people who believe in you. Yeah. So you have to create your own personal brand, but how does someone overcome imposter syndrome? So. <laughs> I think this is something that I have really struggled with in my career. And I think one thing to really emphasize is that imposter syndrome is especially unique to women. And there are studies that also speak to that. And I just want to say that this is a place where as a community of women, we really need to give each other the tools to overcome those feelings of self-doubt but also admit that it's okay to talk about this. Um, I feel like we tend to harbor so much, honestly, emotion and, and, you know, with regard to like, is this something that we can talk about? And the factor of the matter is we need to, I would say that I always kind of wonder where imposter syndrome comes from and, and why it's sort of permeated professional, you know, the, our community of professional women. And I do feel like it's something that even at an early age, we are programmed to be discouraged from demonstrating self-confidence and leadership. So I think this is just something that has been ingrained in our society um, and something that we should be a little bit more intentional on turning the tide on. One thing that I have found almost, I would say very recently, is that Imposter syndrome is a matter of perspective. It's not based Mm -hmm. on fact. So you need to transform your way of thinking to negate what is your personal thought from the facts. So when you think about something and just be like, oh, I made that mistake, I, I feel like a failure, 
you know, I, I feel like everybody hates me. That's on you. You're completely disregarding the fact your achievements and the things that you've accomplished and the things that are actually on paper, actual facts. And so if we can get ourselves to stop thinking so much about our personal perspectives and honestly, just like manufactured thoughts and think about what's on the hard paper, which is our success, then that has really helped me to sort of adopt a new mentality of positivity and self-confidence. And I can certainly say, again, from experience, that's a hard thing to do, and it requires a ton of practice. Um, yeah. But it's worth the practice because it will completely alter the way that you perform as a professional. It completely alters the way that you interact with people and how self-aware you are because you get out of your own way, basically. I would also say that I quite literally keep track of my accomplishments in ways I think sometimes like we hang on to things like the email where you messed up and you're like, oh, I can't believe it. If we lobbied for our wins as much as we hung on to our failures and actually documented them, then, I mean, looking at that, I think is almost a confidence boost in itself. And so I've even started doing that. I know that's, it's a strange practice, but it works. And um I think, again, it's just it taps into that transformational thinking and being more positive and being your own being your own champion. And I would also say that as a leader, it's not only important to transform your own thinking, you want to create a culture for people who so that other people so that your reports so that other women in your company or just generally employees in your company don't harbor those same feelings of self doubt and making people feel valued and empowering them at their best and giving them constructive but empathetic feedback at their, subjectively speaking, worst, being champions for other people and helping to facilitate a deeper understanding of cultural confidence, I think is even more important than working on yourself. Mm, That's really interesting. I like to think of it also as, and I like what you said about documenting your successes and acknowledging your successes as much as you acknowledge your mistakes and the bad things that happen. But I like to look at it also as any win is a win, even if it's the smallest little thing that you accomplished. Like if you're working on a project and you have an overarching goal that you want to hit, but setting up those smaller goals will help make that bigger goal seem more achievable. 100%. I also don't think that there's any problem with celebrating those small wins every chance that you get. I think as professionals, we're often afraid to celebrate ourselves. We're often afraid to advertise ourselves. And there is nothing wrong with demonstrating your proficiency at what you're good at. And so not only setting up those small milestones, but like, like you said, a win is a win. And patting yourself on the back or letting other people know that you're patting yourself on the back is I think not only healthy, it should be welcomed. So, yeah. And this is, and this can also be applied not only to your professional life, but your personal life as well. Like setting small goals of things that you want to accomplish in your own personal life can also help with how you work in your professional life. For me, that was like, okay, I'm going to get up and I'm going to attempt to do a yoga class every morning, set aside that time for me so that I can be with myself and ignore everything else in the world. I'm going to attempt to do that. And some days I do it. Most days I do it, but some days I don't. Well, and that's another thing too. And I think quite a few of us have talked about it 
is that it's okay if you don't necessarily, if you don't make it, you know, if you don't necessarily achieve the milestone, that's fine too. And making time for yourself should be just as respected and creating that work-life balance. If you can't achieve it and you need to take a step back and step away from your computer or like you said, pursue something, you know, pursue other activities. That is so integral, I think, to at the end of the day, the long game of being a better professional. I can't advocate how important that is. Just again, make time for personal goals as well. Yeah. So we touched on a couple of things, but I want to dive into it a little bit more. I like how you phrased it when we were talking about topics for this, but the art of communication, because it really is an art form. But I want to dive into internal communication and then external communication. So internally, what are your thoughts around like self-awareness, making mistakes and learning from them? It definitely becomes more apparent as you mature in your career, like how astute you are about your communication cues and just being perceptive about how that might play out to the room. I would say like, again, we go back to that element of practice and like putting yourself out there in order to get constructive feedback on how basically how you're coming off to a room, how your presentation is coming off, how your communication is coming off. Because if you don't get that feedback, you'll never know. And I feel like initially in my career, I'm very direct. Um, there was a time, I think, especially being in a room that's often dominated by men, and I think a lot of ex- women experience this, is the need to sort of step it up in terms of being yeah. the loudest one in the room. And anybody that you, anybody that I've worked with can can tell you this. Um, I definitely think I tried to be very strong-willed. I think in in my presentation and communication, and realized that it was coming off in a negative and sometimes unprofessional way. And so I thought to myself how, you know, cutting people off or even my body language or, uh, you know, interacting in a way where I'm not asking questions and opening things up to the room. And at the same time, I want to be able to pose my own opinions because we are leaders but I also found the value of being an active listener and absorbing the opinions of others and maybe just like taking a step back sometimes. I felt that has been the most valuable piece of self-improvement advice. This was actually something that an old supervisor of mine told me was that learning to listen. And at the time I was like, yeah, yeah, that like whatever. But it has transformed how I present myself as a professional. It has transformed how I strategize as a leader because I'm making room for everyone else. And I think it has also really helped me to connect with my fellow employees without having to be the loudest one in the room all the time. And I still feel that I'm getting my point across, but in a more meaningful way. So in terms of self-awareness, I think that's sort of where I sit on the spectrum. But then on the other side of the spectrum, I grew up a pretty shy kid. Um, You know, I'm a musician, I think maybe up until age 20, I was horrified to play on a stage. Like I have, I have the worst stage fright. 
And again, there's on the opposing side, I think the value of coming out of your shell and putting yourself out there that will inevitably allow you to feel comfortable. The takeaway there, I just think is take risks. Don't be afraid, whether it's a project or standing on a stage um, that really, I think, contributes to a greater sense of self-awareness as you kind of settle into your own and see the positive reaction that other people will give from you being able to shine. That's so funny that you say that you're that you were really shy when you're growing up because I'm the same way when I was in school. I really did not like and I was annoyed by people that I was in class with who always needed to have their voice heard, always had to answer a question just because they would like to hear themselves talk. I always felt that like if you want to contribute something, like make sure that it's meaningful so I'm the person who sits in meetings and like, and also I've been like this, I guess my entire life where I sit there and I take everything in. And then when I feel like I have something that could be a valuable contribution to the conversation, that's when I start to speak up. But sometimes I question like, oh, am I too quiet? Like, I don't know. No, you're like, further along in the game than all of us, I feel like. <laughs> I, just, I had to like, learn the hard way. I, uh, <laughs> I had to be content being like, overly abrupt before I learned that can be appropriate thing to do in order to, again, read the room, connect and honestly absorb what's going on, you know, and take everything into consideration. And like you said, speak meaningfully, there should be intention in everything that you do. And sometimes that doesn't necessarily mean say everything that's on your mind all the time. And I just want to, I think, underscore as an aside that I don't necessarily think that that means that we are being submissive. I think that that just means that we are being active listeners. And so I think some, there are sometimes questions of like, should we be speaking up? But I think to your point, the answer is when it means something, when the time is right, yeah, when you have the right thing to say. So uh, I think I just want to caveat with that just in terms of I don't necessarily think that that means that as women, we need to be quiet. So, Oh, I, I totally agree with you. And it's, it's such a debate. And I think it's a debate that goes on in our heads all the time. And I don't want to speak for all women because I'm not, but just from my own personal experience, like in my head, I'm like, should I speak up? Should I not speak up? Is what I'm going to present of any value or is someone else going to bring it up? Or <laughs> Well, then that's that the other thing too. It's let the work speak. Like the bottom line is what speaks. It's, you know, not how much people like you or it's what you're presenting as your professional product and your personal brand, but demonstrate your aptitude in your work and the returns that you gain from your work. And I think that will resonate louder than your voice sometimes. So, yeah. So let's talk about external communication and the art of external communication. What aspects of external communication have you learned that's helped you in your career? And I know you talked about microaggressions and like perceptions of aggression, but I want to give a little bit more context before we dive into Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would say that in navigating corporate communication, sometimes the microaggressions are coming from the other side. And it's not necessarily like what we're projecting, but it's how are we reacting to a culture that is, for lack of a better word, founded in male-dominated leadership. And so I think oftentimes in a career, it doesn't matter. I mean, it doesn't matter 
who who the person is, there are going to be people who don't want to see you succeed at your job. There are often going to be people that don't like you. There are often going to be people who I think verbalize things that they may not necessarily know are potentially insulting, but don't really want to learn how to properly communicate. And so basically what I'm getting at is how do we create a culture where these microaggressions don't exist? And for me, I go back to that initial conversation of we talk, we always talk about finding your tribe, creating your network, finding a positive community of people and not disregarding, but I think elevating that positive community of people who are looking to create that culture of empathy and understanding and inclusion and making that the foundation of your existence at your job. I feel like those type of relationships are infectious and that people want to buy into the enthusiasm of a group. And so I think to start, finding your tribe is a big proponent of creating cultural change outwardly at a company. But the other thing I would say is there is nothing wrong with having, we talk about intentional conversation before, critical conversations about things that are uncomfortable are necessary. So depending on what you're comfortable with, we need to have critical conversations about you know, what these microaggressions are. We need to confront these people in a professional way to let them know that what they're doing is not appropriate, but it should not mm. impact your work. The goal should be to focus on the optimistic side to, again, find people who are rooted in supporting one another, but don't be afraid to call people out, again, in a professional way about how they can be altering their perspective to create a more positive work culture, especially for women. I love that. You said that beautifully. Call people out. Call people out in an educational way. (laughs) Got to keep it PC. It's true. And I plan on diving more deeply into this particular topic on another episode because I think it's very important. But it's really interesting to me when men who attend any sort of swim event um, over the past several years, they'll like come up to me and be like, wow, like there are things that I didn't know and that I'm taking away from these sessions and I'm going to apply them back at my company or something like that. Like having an understanding and finding those male allies who understand the changes that have to be made in the industry is also just going to push us in the right direction. Absolutely. I think that I mean, that could be said outside of the realm of inclusion for women, but just in an intersectional way, mobilizing people who will advocate for inclusion in general across multiple sectors is so important. And to your point, that there are so many people that are willing to learn and that are willing to like men that are willing to come to swim events and people that are willing to have discussions about equity and inclusion. And I think that we are really laying the foundation, like the pieces are there. I think, how do we act in a way that will allow us to truly empower these people to help make change? So yeah, I agree with you that there are some incredible advocates and partners across the industry that are looking to champion our success as women, as well as, you know, professionally our individual successes. Yeah, definitely. All right. So final question, what is your current perspective of the state of the industry and how do you think we can do better in the future? Sure. I think we have found 
a great starting point in terms of the conversations, especially over the last few years, and especially talking to women who have been in the industry for much longer than I have. I think that the evolution of what we're seeing at our at trade shows or in magazines and things like that is night and day from what we may have seen 20 years ago. And with things like this podcast and some of the seminars that we've been doing at NAM and the discussion of more education in terms of more equity discussions, I definitely think that again, the foundation is there. If I could describe it as one word, I feel like it's intent. There's intent. People want to make this a more equitable industry, inclusive industry. And as we've seen over the last year or so, we see in advertising and things like that, that there are moves to be made in terms of ensuring that communities that are underserved and that women are getting more of a seat at the table. But in many ways, I sort of classify that as being somewhat passive because if it exists in an advertisement, like what are you doing beyond that? What are you doing from the inside out of your company to, again, create that culture of understanding and create spaces and platforms to allow women and other communities to amplify themselves? So, okay, great. You're posting something on a job board. Like, are you really creating avenues for people to find this position? Are you really creating... Um, opportunities for these individuals to grow in their career. What's next, I think, is the natural segue. Like we're having the conversations. We need to have the deeper conversations now. And I think uh, the critical conversations that we talk about in terms of the microaggressions, because at the end of the day, the microaggressions are still present in some capacity. So what's the next step? Like yeah. what resources are we creating? What toolkits are we creating? What, again, spaces are we creating to allow ourselves as women to amplify our voices? So I think it's at this point, like, here's to the next step and figuring out what yeah. we can do to, I think, mobilize people at an even greater level. I love that. That was beautifully said. I agree with you. The intent is there. We've opened the doors to allow these conversations to happen. But now is the time that we create those actionable steps to really make change happen. Right. And that being said, it's like, okay, the door is open, but the door is open to crack. You know what I mean? Like, we can be open. We need to open the windows. We need to like burst that thing wide open, step outside, for lack of a better word, and dive deep into it. Like we're tiptoeing right now. Like it's time to dive in. So let's get uncomfortable. Exactly. That's a hundred percent where we need to be taking our thinking. Yeah. I've learned that a lot over the past couple of months. It's like in order to grow, we have to have those uncomfortable conversations. We have to feel uncomfortable in order to slightly recognize the work that needs to be done. And that's really, I feel like the crux of the entire conversation that we've had, whether it's bettering yourself, bettering your industry, bettering your employer, you need to be a little uncomfortable and you need to take those risks. And that's the only way people will develop a greater perspective on change and empowerment is being honest with yourself. And being honest about yeah. the world around you. So, I think I've mentioned this before on the podcast, and I, I probably have. I don't remember, but I was told that if you're comfortable, you're doing it wrong. 
I 100% back that. And not only in terms of having the uncomfortable conversations, but success takes work. If you're comfortable, you're not putting in the real work. There's still work to be done. So it's time to like, let's buckle down and put in the work. You heard it here first. (laughs) And that's that. (laughs) (laughs) Wise words from Hillary Brown. (laughs) But in a professional way. (laughs) Yes. Well, Hillary, thank you so much for your words, your wisdom, and just taking the time to chat with me. And I hope this resonates with a lot of people. I really think it will. It has been an absolute honor to be a part of this this show and, and this this industry. So thank you so much. Welcome. All right. Talk soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of Swim Masters. Don't forget to follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn to stay up to date on all new things swim. We'd love it if you could share and leave us a review. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at smartwomeninmusic.org. This episode was co-produced and edited by Stephanie Lamond, Natalie Morrison, and Julia Olson. See you next time.